Good morning. I'm glad you're with us today. One more week of this, and then we'll be back at our church building, planning on anyway, on June 7th. Now, I'll still be recording the videos, and we'll try to do it live on Zoom, just working out some technical issues on that. But I'm glad you're with me this morning. Glad you've taken this time to join me. This morning, I want to talk to you about an important topic. I want to talk about faith. What exactly does that word faith mean? It is one of those words that we most often use in a church context. It means different things to different people dependent upon how it's being used, though. Sometimes <clears throat> faith refers to a list of beliefs or religious affiliation. People will say they belong to a particular faith, or you might ask someone, what is your faith? In reality, you're just asking, what church do you attend? In other instances, maybe a couple of teenagers are out playing basketball, and they're challenging one another, and they'll take the ball, and the one on defense will say, go ahead and take the shot. If you have faith, the teenager will say to his mother or father and say, when I want to go out with my friends and I need the car, they'll say, come on, have a little faith. I'll be okay. That's not what we're talking about. We need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about faith. We're going to look at a few passages today when we talk about faith. And the first one I'd like to go to is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 simply says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. See, this passage is dealing, and it's the lead-in verse to chapter 11, which is the honor roll of faith, as I call it. As you read on through Hebrews 11, you read about all of the men and women faithful to God as they lived and walked by faith. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul talks about the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that's a quote from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 4. He is talking about the righteous of God, those who are following him. Everything they do in their obedience to him is going to be their faith in him and not of themselves. So along that line, I want to look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus is telling a parable. Now, a parable is simply defined in one sense as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. These parables were things that were taken out of normal context of everyday life. People had probably witnessed these things going on, and Jesus is just taking advantage of their experience to draw a parallel between their experience and what he's trying to teach them. In chapter 18 and verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now let's rephrase that passage just a little bit and substitute the word faith. 
He also told this parable to some who had faith in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It doesn't change the flow. It doesn't change the meaning of what Jesus has said about what Luke has written. The parables is this way. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you can hear them, almost their wheels turning in their minds, thinking about all their experience with Pharisees and tax collectors and going on. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee. I think the New American Standard Version says, prayed to himself standing by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like these other terrible people. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He was basically bragging to God. And so he prayed to himself, trusted himself in his walk, of righteousness. Contrary to what Habakkuk had taught many years before, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what does it mean to live by faith? On page 560 of our songbooks, at Central anyway, uh, 560, Living by Faith, that's the title of the song. It's a great song. I really like it. Uh, I'm just going to read the three verses and then the chorus. I care not today what tomorrow may bring, if shadow or sunshine or rain. The Lord I know rules over everything, and all of my worry is vain. Though tempests may blow and storm clouds arise, obscuring the brightness of life, I'm never alarmed at the overcast skies. The master looks on at the strife. Our Lord will return to this earth some sweet day, our troubles will then all be o'er. The master so gently will lead us away beyond that blessed heavenly shore. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting, confiding in his great love, from all harm safe in his sheltering arm, I am living by faith and feel no alarm. Now, I don't know exactly what verses of scripture the songwriter had when he penned those words. But one of the verses that comes to my mind is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the closing part of it, simply titled in verse 31, God's everlasting love in my Bible. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, we live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. The problem is we can be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 in that parable, and we can have trust and confidence in ourselves. Many years ago, 1930, I believe it was, a brother in Christ by the name of Elisha Sewell, he said this, or wrote this in a newsletter, a Christian publication called The Gospel Advocate. It says, I have heard many otherwise excellent sermons on faith in which the effect was almost lost because of the failure to make prominent the object of faith, Jesus as the Son of God. Now think about that for a moment right there. The effect was almost lost because of the failure to make prominent the object of faith, Jesus as the Son of God. The faith that saves people, he continues, is not faith in an indefinite something, nor faith in one's ability to keep the commandments better than others, nor faith in the correctness of one's understanding of the scriptures, but faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You see, we can have all manner of confidence and faith in ourselves. We can be like that Pharisee in the parable in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. We can be there in the presence of God and praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people, that I'm not unjust, I'm not a, an adulterer, that I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm not like these people who don't believe the teaching that I believe. Or we can be like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, that's the decision that we have to make. It is so easy to trust in ourselves. You see, there are things that we know that God wants us to do and how to live. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, and he reminds those Christians and reminds us, says that you were dead in your trespasses and in in sins in which you once walked. You were in the world. You listened to Satan and not to God. I'm not reading the entire passage. But he says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace, through faith, so that we won't boast. The Roman letter, when Paul was trying to explain justification by faith to Jews and Gentiles, had to first place everyone under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. We're saved by the grace of God. In chapter 4, he used the examples of the Old Testament, too, that the Jews would just, they were their heroes, Abraham and David. Abraham offered Isaac his son on the altar. He was reckoned to God, as, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was considered righteous because of his faith. God had promised him a son. He promised him Isaac. And then he says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. The Hebrew writer tells us that he expected to see a resurrection because he was the seed promise. He was the promised one that God told him that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He used David. David, the king, was the one who, well, Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. He was a man after God's own heart. And God promised that through him, through his seed, that there would always be one on the throne of Israel, that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. We walk by faith and not by sight, Paul would go on to say in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, and speaking of 1 Corinthians, I want to turn to chapter 1, because Paul is writing to, to a church that's divided. But know this, in early part of chapter 1, in verse 10, or verse 2, excuse me, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. They were the church of God. Though they were divided, those we read later on in this passage, he said, when he appeals to them to be of the same mind and the same judgment, he says, what do what I mean is that each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He saw the division. He saw the personality conflicts. He still considered them brothers. He considered them God's people. They were still trying to do some things according to human terms. And maybe that was why the division was. Paul's doctrine is better than that of Cephas. Apollos is better than that of Paul. He says, I don't want there to be these divisions. And he's talking to them, and those divisions come from human thoughts, not God's thoughts. And I say that for this reason. In verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What Paul is saying there. The Jews trusted in themselves to understand the scriptures, to see the various signs of the age, to know when the Messiah was coming. They demanded sign after sign after sign. And they couldn't accept the fact that the Messiah would come, humble himself, take on the form of God, God take on the form of humankind, serve them, that would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of on a stallion. The Greeks, they sought wisdom because wisdom was the key. And they, through their own intellectual powers, thought that they could figure all these things out. You know, that's the way it is sometimes with Christians today, I fear. Because we know the things that we can do. We, are, get, we gain confidence in the work that we do, the things that we're accomplished in. And that bleeds over into our life of faith sometime. Because I spend time in the scriptures and I read my intellect, I start trusting more in my intellectual ability and maybe less in Christ. There is nothing wrong with having solid intellect. There is nothing wrong with having good understanding of what the scriptures teach. But we have to continue to say it's not by my own efforts it's by my faith in God. Let's go back to Luke 18 for a while, and let's just re-paraphrase re, uh, that again. He told this parable to some who trusted in their own intellectual abilities, their own understanding of Scripture, their own understanding of doctrine. Does it change the essence of the Pharisee? Not at all. The Pharisees were known as the separated ones. They trusted in themselves that they had the law down just exactly the way God intended it to be. But when Jesus came, they asked his disciples on more than one occasion, why do your disciples violate the law and not observe the Sabbath? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, talked to them about why did they invalidate the commandments of God about honoring mother and father. You see, Jesus' disciples were living. And were they really working when they plucked heads of grain? Was that really harvesting? Only in a microscopic proportion. Was it really threshing to rub the chaff and separate the grain and then to blow it? Only looking at it very legalistically. They were given the grain to eat. God did not create the Sabbath for man, but did not create man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. God wanted the Sabbath so man would have a day of rest and reflection and live by faith in God, trusting in him. Because 
how would they eat? Well, God sent them manna and quail. And when they gathered the manna in the wilderness, what happened? On Friday, they gathered a double portion. The one who gathered too little had plenty. The one who didn't gather or who gathered too much didn't have more than he could handle. God was providing for them. And that's what God wants us to know. I will take care of you. Trust in me. Follow me. And so on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, when Paul or when Peter and the rest of the apostles were preaching, this is tremendous. When they were preaching, they convinced, persuaded the multitudes there what Jesus did and that he was the Messiah. They were pricked in their hearts, it says in verse 36. Or verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Oh, they were no longer like the Pharisee of Luke 18, trusting in themselves. They saw the folly of that trust. And they just said, what shall we do? Is there any hope? We want to be right with God. And Peter simply told them to repent and be baptized so that their sins might be washed away, saying this promises to you, to your children, and to all those who are far away, the Gentiles. So, and he continued to preach to them words saying, "Be save, save yourselves from this perverse generation. You see, we walk by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. We don't want to trust ourselves in matters of salvation, in matters of our life with God. We're going to live by faith and be pleasing to him because that's what he seeks. We may not have all the answers, and that's okay. I don't care what tomorrow may bring. If it's sunshine or rain, God rules over everything. My worry is in vain. I don't have to worry about the virus pandemic because God's going to take care of me. If I live, praise God. If I contract the virus and die, praise God. As long as I'm living by faith in him, relying on him and not my own efforts. That's what faith is all about in Christ. You see, we live by faith in everything that we do. And it is so easy as we get better and better at various things to start trusting in ourselves. And maybe that's part of the story of the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve, when they saw the forbidden fruit and Satan said, you'll become as wise as God, they started trusting in their own judgments, in their own abilities, and less in what God had said. And they became the object of faith, not God. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, there is a story, as I give this lesson to you, that goes back in our recent past to the classic movie, Ben-Hur, that was done by Cecil B. DeMille, and it starred Charlton Heston. And when he was filming the movie, Ben-Hur, Heston was having trouble learning to drive the chariot. He tells DeMille, 
I think I can drive the chariot, but I don't know if I'll win the race. And Namil said, you just stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. You know, that's the essence of faith in God. We say, Lord, I don't know if I've got what it takes to win. And God says, you stay in the race. You stay faithful to me, and I'll give you a crown of life. You do your best. You trust in me. I'll make sure you win the race. I will give you a crown of life. Faith, not in ourselves, not in our own understanding, but faith in God. Faith that in those things that, well, I was trying and giving my full heart to God, that he's going to take care of it. And I don't have to worry about it grace extended to us because of our faith in Christ. Oh, I will do all that I can to be pleasing to him, but I'm not going to trust those things to make me pleasing. I'm going to trust God to accept them as the sacrifice of my life in obedience to him, to living by faith in him. So I'll do those things that he's commanded, but I do them to glorify him, to submit to him, not to submit to myself. So I want to say thank you for being with me today. It's been a pleasure having you. I look forward to being with you next week. And as I said, on Sunday, June 7th, we'll be back at the Central Church of Christ building. Um, So we look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, glorify God, live, walk by faith. Thank you.